Hello there, this is Search for Truth, your Bible teaching program with Brian Johnston. It's great to have you with us. And last week saw the start of this new series called The Gospel of God's Grace. And this time we have the second talk in this series. The title is The Handshake. And once more, we'll be referring to Paul's letter to the Galatians, as well as many other verses in the New Testament of the Bible. So let's hear about the handshake now from Brian. Thanks, John. Yes, it's good to shake hands at the settling of any matter. Let me tell you about five men who shook hands. Although it must be said, as is often the case, living up to the terms of the agreement they'd arrived at turned out to be somewhat tricky. That was definitely the case for one of them. He was the Apostle Peter. Peter's tendency to deny truth for the sake of immediate popularity would again let him down, in a sense reminiscent of what had happened at the time of our Lord's arrest and trial when you remember he denied the Lord. We might almost say that Satan had played Peter that way on an even earlier occasion. I'm thinking of when Peter had tried to banish thoughts of the cross from our Lord's mind, as recorded in Matthew chapter 16. Much later, and quite unwittingly, Peter would once again become Satan's instrument in attempting to obscure the gospel. But, to be fair, it was no easier for another man who'd shaken hands that same day. His name was Barnabas, another apostle, and one known for his compassionate nature. But soothing the feelings of others by pragmatic negotiation, while sometimes invaluable, would turn out to be a serious misjudgment in this instance. In contrast to those two men, it was in the formerly hostile rabbi, Saul of Tarsus, that the gospel found its staunchest, most resolute supporter. He was another of those five men who'd shaken hands, but he was one who remained loyal to the terms of the agreement. There's a fascinating insight into what followed the handshake we've referred to, and it's given by Paul as he writes his circular letter to the New Testament churches of God in the province then known as Galatia. He begins with some personal touches in the first chapter. Under fire at the time, he seems to need to go out of his way to demonstrate how minimal his contact with the other apostles had been up until then. He tells them and us that he'd received the gospel independently of the others. In fact, he'd received it directly from the Lord himself. He maintains that the gospel he preached before his most recent contact with the Jerusalem leaders was exactly the same as he was still preaching. His summary of the private leaders' conference at Jerusalem, which had concluded with the aforementioned handshake, was this, that those reckoned to be of repute had neither added to the content of his preaching nor to its authority. In other words, there had been no change. Because, of course, Paul's message and his commissioning had come directly from the Lord. By the time he comes to write Galatians chapter 2, Paul's now a fairly seasoned preacher, having preached in Damascus, then in Tarsus and in surrounding Cilicia, and after that he'd been injected into the mission work at Antioch by Barnabas, who'd been his early advocate turned recruiter. Antioch was to become Paul's home church and was to serve as a bridgehead for the Gentile mission of which he was the leader. Antioch was an exciting place to be back then, ever since the gospel pioneers from Africa and Cyprus had made landfall there and broken the previous mould of Jews preaching only to Jews. 
Some of the pioneers from northern Africa became, reasonably enough, leaders of the local church at Antioch. Lucius was one of them. And whether he's one and the same as the Gentile Dr Luke, who acted like Paul's personal physician, we can't be sure, but it may just be possible. And it's still only a plausible assumption, no more than that, that Simeon, known by the nickname Niger, might also have come from Cyrene in Africa and might even be one and the same as Simon of Cyrene, otherwise known as the father of Rufus and Alexander, whose wife had acted like a mother to Paul while he was in Antioch. Paul's later graphic accounts of the crucifixion whenever he preached could easily then have originated in first-hand accounts that he obtained in the home of the man who'd carried the cross for Jesus. From Antioch, Paul and Barnabas were commissioned for their evangelical ministry, or, as they were more often referred to at that time, Barnabas and Saul. So Paul was commissioned and sent out from Antioch. But he was at pains to stress to the Galatians that it was really the Lord who'd commissioned him directly from the beginning, from his time in Damascus and Arabia, in fact. This is where he begins to document his primary credentials to the Galatians. Paul's so keen to demonstrate the authentic message that he preached that he says this at the close of Galatians chapter 1. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and try to destroy it, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. But when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. But I did not see any other of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now, in what I am writing to you, I assure you before God that I am not lying. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea which were in Christ, but only they kept hearing He who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy, and they were glorifying God because of me. So just back on the point we were making before, notice how Paul has said that after his Damascus Road experience, he didn't head for Jerusalem and the apostles there. No, he went off into Arabia. In other words, he was alone with the Lord in preparation for his future life of service. While it's not clear if Paul was in Arabia for all or even most of the three years that get a mention here, it's still true that this reinforces the point made in the lives of Moses, Elijah and John the Baptist. And that lesson is the need for extensive preparation. Following that, Paul did go to Jerusalem where he spent 15 days becoming acquainted with Peter. We can only imagine how invaluable, instructive and absorbing such an experience would have been, as Paul learnt from the three years in which Peter had been a close companion of the Lord, 
one of the inner circle of three whom the Lord occasionally had selected to receive more intimate experiences of his power than the others. In addition to personal preparation, how valuable it is to spend quality time with those who've walked closely with the Lord. Then there was for Paul a period of being unknown in his home territory without any celebrity status as we might refer to it, but with all the glory for his conversion going to God. We probably do converts with dramatically changed lives a total disservice today when we treat them as some kind of Christian celebrity. But we need to get back to Paul's letter to the Galatians. Remember, he was writing to them in order to clarify the gospel. I believe it's useful to try to sketch a possible sequence of events. We'll start with the early verses of Galatians chapter 2. Then after an interval of 14 years, Paul says, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. It was because of a revelation that I went up, and I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. But I did so in private to those who were of reputation, for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren, secretly brought in, who had sneaked in to spy at our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour, so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. But from those who were of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me, God shows no partiality. Well, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, for he who effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised, effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles. And recognising the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I also was eager to do. Before this private conference in Jerusalem that we've read about here, Peter had been given his own revelation of God's purpose as it involved Gentiles. He'd been instrumental in the conversion of Cornelius and had reported back and pacified the zealous Jews in Jerusalem. About the same time, Barnabas had been commissioned to check out reports of gospel progress among Gentiles at Antioch, and he'd soon brought Paul into the fray there. It would seem then that Peter and Paul were on the same page at this point, and the mother church at Jerusalem, which was increasingly under James' leadership, was altogether comfortable with that. At the private conference, when the five of them had shaken hands, they'd drawn up lines of demarcation. Peter would focus on the conversion of Jews and Paul on the conversion of Gentiles. But here was the rub. Practically every city in the world of the Eastern Mediterranean had a mixed population of Jews and Gentiles, so the lines were bound to get crossed sooner rather than later. Also, at that private conference, the issue of circumcision as such didn't seem to have been a major discussion point, as witness to the fact that there had been no pressure on Titus, a Greek, to become circumcised. Things were soon to change, however, as we'll see, and early Christian harmony was soon to be tested. Oh, no. 
what I said last week that here at Search for Truth our wish is that you might know the joy and eternal security that comes from faith in Christ. So if you have any questions please write in and Brian will be glad to help. We never pass on your details so you can contact us with confidence. There's also a transcript book for all the talks in this series. It's available free on request by asking for the title The Gospel of God's Grace. You can order by email or by post, and here's our address. Search for Truth, Hayes Press, The Barn, Flaxlands, Royal Wootton Bassett, Swindon, SN48DY, UK. And our email address is sft at churchesofgod.info. And did you know by looking up www.searchfortruth.org.uk, You'll find our church's main website, where you can download some actual programmes and their accompanying transcripts, as well as accessing other helpful material. Well, sadly, we're near the end of our programme today, but next week there's another talk about the Gospel of God's Grace, so please join us again if you can. But for now, it's very best wishes from Brian, David, our singers and me, John. So cheerio and may God richly bless you.